So the other day I was at HEB at 1604 in Bandera, quickly trying to move through my shopping uh, list. And the last place that you would expect to have to fight for your rights is at the grocery store. But I was at the back of the store, if you shop there, you know it, where the aisle is super wide, and I was making my way toward the milk section, when all of a sudden I heard this booming sound of a basketball behind me. And I couldn't believe that I was hearing this as it kept getting closer and closer. And as that happened, I began to feel like whoever was back there doing this was invading my personal space, and it was having an effect on my shopping experience. Now, I understand someone loving the game of basketball and wanting to play it all the time everywhere you go. I certainly did when I was a kid, but doing this in a public place just seemed a bit inconsiderate, and I was certain that I was right about that. Well, as he got closer, I got more annoyed, and so I rather aggressively steered my shopping cart to the right to cut him off. After all, I played a lot of basketball growing up. I know how that works. We were on a collision course right in the middle of HEB, and to be honest, that was just fine with me. <laughs> Did I mention I was annoyed? And I was right. Well, later, as I reflected on this event, which actually only took a few seconds to unfold, I realized that even though I was right, I was wrong. Because collisions usually turn out badly, regardless of who's right, and who's wrong? Now, currently in the United States, we live in a social context that is full of head-on collisions. We're colliding politically. We're colliding over the color of our skin. We're colliding over our sexual orientation. And many people, of course, are colliding relationally. And there's a reason. We're certain we're right. And they're wrong. And we want our rights to be acknowledged. I mean, after all, this is America. We have a right to be right, right? Right. And it's almost like it's an obligation to fight for our rights. So why do we always have the need to be the one who is right? Why do we feel like we have to fight? Well, could it be that somewhere hidden deep inside of you, there is a pain that won't go away from a time when someone wronged you? And ever since that event, you've determined that you're going to fight for your rights? And you know what? You probably are right. When people harm us, that's wrong. And you're not supposed to feel good about being wronged. That's not how life is supposed to work. Husbands aren't supposed to abuse their wives. Wives aren't supposed to cheat on their husbands. Kids aren't supposed to rebel against their parents. Friends are supposed to be loyal. We all get this, and it's what we want. 
We want things to be right. But is it possible to be right and still be wrong at the same time? I mean, if a drunk driver swerves into your lane and you refuse to move because it's your lane, aren't you still about to have a head-on collision? And is that what you really want, even if you're right? So what do we do if we're facing relational head-on collisions? What's the best way to survive and to make peace? Well, that's the uh, question that I want to try to answer today. Now, remember, in this series, we are looking at the three-step process that the Apostle Paul laid out for a couple of ladies in the church in Philippi to help them make peace in their relationships. And last week, we saw that the first step is to put the conflict in its proper perspective because perspective changes our attitude toward the conflict and its overall importance in our lives. Now, Paul goes on to give the second step to making peace. And that's what we want to look at today. So this is what he said. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. The second step to making peace in relationships is based on gentleness. But what does that mean? Well, Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer of the 16th century, illustrated the meaning of the term gentleness in this way. He said that in Germany's Black Forest, where he lived, a pine tree would sometimes fall down over the deep ravines that were in the Black Forest there. And it would form a kind of bridge and a shortcut. And so billy goats, instead of having to walk all the way down a ravine and all the way back up again, could simply walk across that tree and use it as a bridge. But on occasion, two goats would get on the tree at the same time, heading in opposite directions. And you and I know that the tendency of billy goats is to butt heads and to fight with each other. But if they did while on the tree, they would both fall to their death and neither would survive the head-on collision. But these goats were maybe sometimes smarter than you and I are, and they instinctively understood this. And that is why one of them would lie down on the tree, straddle it, And allow the other to walk over him. And then the first would get up and continue on. And in this way, they would both survive. You know, in the same way, if you want your relationships to survive, sometimes it means you can't fight for your right. And that is what the term gentleness means. And there's a reason that it is the key to making peace. Because the best way to survive a relational head-on collision is to avoid it. In other words, yield. 
Now, I understand there are times when we cannot yield. If someone is physically or emotionally abusing you, or if you're in a situation that is a matter of life and death, you need to seek safety. But when it is simply a matter of preference, yield. But I told you last week that what I was going to tell you, you weren't going to like, and that's the part I'm pretty sure you don't like. Most of us don't like to yield and let someone else walk over us. I know I certainly don't. I mean, who likes it when someone pulls in on, in, uh, in on you in traffic after a long day at work when you're just trying to get home? Who likes it when the boss forces her point of view simply because she's the boss? Who likes it when their spouse always has to get their way? None of us likes to yield when we think the other person is wrong. So why would Paul tell us to do that? Well, one reason that we need to do it is because it's better for you. Writing in the Journal of Social Psychiatry and Psychiatric Epidemiology, researchers from the Medical College of George found that people who said they tended to hold grudges reported higher rates of heart disease and cardiac arrest, elevated blood pressure, stomach ulcers, arthritis, back problems, headaches, and chronic pain than those who didn't share this tendency. Unforgiveness appears to be unhealthy. Fighting for your rights is a huge burden to carry and should only be done when absolutely necessary. But not only is it not good for you now, Paul said it won't be good for us later. Look at what he said again. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. The phrase, the Lord is near, in Paul's theology is a reference to the return of Jesus for his church to be followed by a judgment where we will be evaluated for how we have lived our lives. Now, this is not a judgment about heaven or hell but how those of us who are Jesus followers have lived and conducted ourselves uh, on this earth. Paul spoke about this judgment when he said to the Corinthian believers, for we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. In other words, how we have lived our lives is going to be evaluated. And since this is going to happen, it's important for you and me to know the standard for the evaluation. You know, I remember way back in the 1960s when I was in elementary school, we would have these days when, that we all looked forward to because they were physical fitness tests. The government would put these out and the government always set the standards. And we always wanted to know, you know, how many sit-ups do I have to do or how many push-ups do I have to do or how fast do I have to run around the gym in order to get an excellent ranking? We all want to know that. What do we have to do? What's the standard? But very interestingly, 
unlike the government setting that evaluation for us, Paul said that the evaluation that is going to be, is going to happen that he's referring to at the end of time, the New Testament says that you and I are setting the standard for ourselves by which we will be judged. And we're doing it by how we treat others now. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. He said, the standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. James said it this way. He said, there will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. In other words, if you press your rights against another, even if you are right, God will press his rights against you. But if you are gentle and show mercy to another, even when they are wrong, then God will be gentle and show mercy to you. Y'all, this is crucial. Don't miss this. What we do when we're right and another is wrong determines how we will be judged in the future. How we relate to them in that moment. When we are in conflict with someone else relationally, how we treat them, our attitude toward them, the words we say to them, the standard we expect them to get to is the standard that God will use to judge us. And I don't know about you, but I find this an incredibly motivating reason to not always fight for my rights, even when I'm certain that I am right. But what he said wasn't true. Right. But she took advantage of me. Right. But he shouldn't be bouncing a basketball in H-E-B. Right. We're right. But we're wrong. Now, I admit, being gentle and yielding when we're certain we're right and the other person is wrong is hard to do. No one likes this. So how can we actually pull it off? Well, even though it's not easy, it is simpler than you might think, and it is doable. This is what Paul said. He said, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Now, remember, we said last week that it's natural to fixate on all that is wrong about the person that we're in conflict with, right? Right. See, that word keeps coming up all the time. It's easy to blame them for everything. But here is what Paul is saying in this verse. He says, although the other person may be wrong, there are things about that person that are right. And if you want to avoid a head-on collision, then you've got to focus on the things that are right 
about the other person, even if they're wrong in this particular situation. This is the basis for yielding to them and being gentle. And that's why Paul said, think about such things. Now, the word think was an accounting term that meant to credit someone's account for what they had paid. And Paul is using it to say, give the other person credit for what's good about them. When you do, it's easier to yield to them because it adjusts your perspective toward them. You realize that even though they may be wrong in this situation, they aren't all bad. And so that's what I'm asking you and me to do today. I'm asking you to focus on the good things about the bad person that you're in conflict with. It's the second step to making peace in relationships. Now, to help us do this, we gave you a simple chart when you came in called the good list chart. So if you take that out, we want to use this for just a minute here in the service. I want to show you how it works. There are eight questions on the list, and I want to just quickly work through these eight questions with you. If you have a pencil or a pen, fill something out right now. I want you to get in your mind the person you're in conflict with. That's probably easy. They're probably right there in the front of your mind all the time. So bring them back up again, all right? And let's think about them. And here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to work through this list with me. And I'm asking you to write down at least one thing. I think there's probably more than one, but write down at least one thing that's good about them in each of these areas as we work our way through. And I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story as we go along how I filled it out about a pastor that I was in conflict with one time. Okay, so here's, let's go, let's start. Number one, what's good about their personality? You know, sometimes I felt like this pastor that I was in conflict with was a little bit of a legalist, but I, one of the things I knew about him was that he always wanted to do what was right. And uh, basically, this guy, I mean, he wanted to get along with people, and there was no question about that. So even though I had a problem with him, uh, he wanted to get along with people, and he wanted to do what was right. All right, number two, what's good about their work ethic? Well, you know, this guy regularly worked 80 hours a week doing the church work in the church that we were in. I mean, it was phenomenal. Nobody was going to outwork this pastor, and it was a great quality about him. All right, number three, what's good about their character? This guy, even though I was in conflict with him, he was a man of great integrity. There was never any question about whether or not he was going to tell the truth. You know, some of you might be saying, well, Witty, this guy sounds like an angel. What were you in conflict over? But maybe my point's coming. I don't know. What, what's good about the way they handle money? Uh-huh. This guy was judicious. You know, he made a pretty good salary. He was pastor of a pretty large church. But he, he, did, he didn't drive a car as nice as mine. His house was just a normal house. The guy was judicious with his own money, 
and he was judicious in the way he led the church to spend its money. All right, next question. What's good about the way they relate to people? You know, to be honest, this was actually one of his weaknesses when I knew him. But I can tell you, at times of crisis in people's lives, I saw him over and over again function in a brilliant way with those people who were in crisis. And he was, he was just excellent at it. He was way better at it than I was. All right, next question. What's good about their relationship with God? Well, I only need one word to describe this dude. He was zealous for God, and he was consistently that way. Next, what do you admire about that person? Well, I admired the fact that this guy worked so hard. I was taught to appreciate work by my own dad growing up, and it's something I believe in, and this dude just worked hard for the cause uh, every day, and I appreciated that about him. And then lastly, what are things that others praise them for? So here's what I did. I haven't seen this guy in a lot of years. So what I did this week is I went on his Facebook page to see what others were saying about him. And I was amazed again at just how many good comments people had about this guy and about how good a guy he is and how he has served them and helped him. And so as we're working our way through, I want you to do that same sort of thing for the person that you're in conflict with. What is good about that person? Because when we take the time to make a list like this, we realize that the person we're in conflict with has some good things in their favor. And this will help you and me adjust our attitude toward them. And it gives us the possibility to make peace. You know, the story is told of the billionaire industrialist John D. Rockefeller, who was the definition of wealth and power in the early 19th century. He owned the Standard Oil Company. One day, one of his senior executives made a decision that cost the company $40 million in today's money. One decision. Well, on that day, everyone avoided Rockefeller knowing that he would be justifiably angry, except for a guy who was a partner in the company who was named Ed Bedford. When Bedford walked into Rockefeller's office, he noticed him scribbling something on a pad of paper. And so when Bedford walked in, Rockefeller stopped and looked up at him and said, I guess you've heard about our loss. And Bedford acknowledged, yeah, I've heard about it. And, and so he said, well, I thought that before I asked this fellow to come in and discuss the matter, I would write some things down in his favor. And so I've made a list of three previous occasions when he made decisions that earned the company many times more than the cost of his recent error. Bedford later said that when he was tempted to rip into someone for something wrong they'd done, he'd remember that day in Rockefeller's office. And he would also make a list of all the good things about that person. And Bedford said that invariably, by the time he finished making the list, his perspective would change. And the need to fight for his rights would be calmed. 
Y'all, if you want to make peace, you have to make the list of all that's good about the other person because it will help you avoid a head-on collision. Would you pray with me? Lord, you know us well, and we know ourselves, and if we're honest, we're prone to anger. And Lord, you know the effect that this has on our relationships. And Lord, maybe our anger is justified, but we know that if we're honest about the other person, that not everything about them is as bad as we might feel at the moment. And so, Lord, I want to pray for those who are in relational conflict today. I pray, Lord, that uh, you would do whatever you can or will do with the other person, but primarily, Lord, I pray that you would change us and that you would change our perspective toward that person and that you would change our attitudes. And, Lord, I pray that you would sober us with the understanding that one day the standard we use with others is the standard that you will use with us when you evaluate our lives. Lord, we want to make peace in our relationships. And I pray for those who are in conflict now and it's a heavy burden for them to carry. I pray that you would give them the insight they need to know how to apply what we're talking about to make peace in their relationships. And we ask this together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, y'all, I want to remind you again and encourage you to go to uh, uh, city.church slash makepeace to look at the additional resources there. John Pyle and I recorded another podcast this week related to this talk. I think it'll be helpful to you. There's other resources there. You can get those. Also, if you'd be interested in joining me for the half-day, one-day event on August the 20th, Remember, you can sign up at the Tan Pavilion outside today. And then our prayer team will be here. Prayer team, just come on right now. If we can pray with you today before you get away about a relational conflict you're going through or other issues in your life, please let us do that. Now, let me tell you what we're going to do next week. You know how when you're in conflict, you just have to talk about the other person? Well, those conversations are often devastating and they fuel the conflict. That's why it continues. And so next week, we're going to look at how you and I can get beyond our need to talk badly about the other person. Hope to see you next week. Thank you for being here. Y'all have a good week.